This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. I think it really is about allowing our hearts to be open and when necessary to break for someone else, and then asking for the Holy Spirit to push us in whatever direction that we are supposed to go as individuals. It won't be the same for everyone. But when we have a new heart, a tender heart, and when we're sensitive to the pain of others, then almost always we'll find some way to act. You are listening to Quick to Listen. I'm Morgan Lee. I'm a co-host here at the show and an assistant editor for Christianity Today magazine. And I am joined today by Caitlin Beatty, but also as always. Hi, Caitlin. (laughs) Hey, Morgan. How's it going? It's great to have you here. And I'm looking forward to you telling us all who our guest is this week, who I think is going to be a real treat. Yeah. So this week we are joined by a person leader that many of our readers and listeners have probably encountered over the last few years. Joshua Dubois is founder and director of Values Partnerships, a consulting firm that fosters faith-based partnerships in the public, private, and neighbor nonprofit sectors. He formally led the White House Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships and was named President Obama's pastor-in-chief by Time magazine. He was also named one of Christianity Today's 33 Under 33 Leaders to Watch back in 2014. He wrote a book, The President's Devotional, and lives in Washington, D.C. with his wife, Michelle, and his son, August. Thanks so much for joining us, Joshua. Caitlin, Morgan, it's wonderful to be on with you. Thanks for having me on Quick to Listen. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Joshua, is it true that you just like went to work at the White House for a couple of years? Like that was your <laughs> office? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. It was wild. You kind of had to pinch yourself walking walking around there some days and just give glory to God for the opportunity. But yeah, no, I started working for uh, then Senator Obama long before he was president, and um, and then when he was elected, uh, transitioned into the White House. Yeah. And this is kind of a fangirl question, but how exactly did you connect initially with Senator, now President Obama? Yeah, it was um, uh, the summer of 2004, and um, I was doing an internship on Capitol Hill and um, was in a, a restaurant eating a hamburger, actually. And I, <laughs> wow. I, looked up, <laughs> I looked up at the television screen and I saw this guy with this really odd name, Barack Obama, giving this amazing speech at the Democratic National Convention in Boston in, in 04. And he you know, was talking about policy issues that I cared about. And he was talking about, you know, the poor and marginalized. And then out of nowhere, he said, and and we worship an awesome God, even in the blue states. And, you know, as as both a a progressive and a a strong believer, I said, you know what, this guy is right, we do. And, you know, just kind of rocketed me back to singing our God is an awesome God at FCA camps and and so forth (laughs) of my childhood. And just kind of one one of those moments where I I felt like I was nudged to reach out to, to him. And so, Wrote him a few form letters, got some, I mean, some few letters, got some form letter responses. And to make a very long story short, and I'm happy to share more, just basically showed up at his office a, a couple of times um, until they gave me an interview. And so that's a short version of a, of a pretty long story. It's like a parable, like the parable of the persistent door knocker or something. Or the annoying early millennial at that point trying to find <laughs> yes, his, the parable. his place in the world. <laughs> yes, the parable of the eager and hungry millennial who <laughs> is willing to knock on the president's door. Well, we're really grateful to have you on our show today. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. 
So let's let me get into the discussion that we will be having and give everyone an overview of that. As many listeners know, last week, the deaths of the Twin Cities, Philando Castile and Baton Rouge's Antoine Sterling were both captured on videotape. And in this instance, these were two black men who were shot by police officers, bringing to mind the deaths of, among others, Tamir Rice, Walter Scott and Eric Garner. Um, whose deaths were also captured on camera. And these deaths sparked Black Lives Matter protests around the country, including Dallas, who had had its own march last Thursday night. And after the protest concluded there, a sniper shot and killed five police officers who had been patrolling the event. So in, in the wake of these deaths, we've seen more Black Lives Matter protests We've seen kind of like the rise of police chief David Brown, whose remarks many have found healing and refreshing and a memorial service, which I'll touch on a little bit later, where Brown, but also President Bush and President Obama spoke yesterday. We've also seen calls from Christians of color exhorting white Christians and those from majority culture to speak more truthfully and emphatically on systemic racism. We also know that from experience, those in majority culture can at times drown out the voices of others and sometimes They can fail to listen and they can attempt to draw conclusions about things or make remarks before they have a grasp of the situation. So today I really want to talk about listening and the tension of listening and figuring out when to speak. And I want to just read something that I thought was kind of applicable that President Obama remarked yesterday in his um, address at the Dallas Memorial Service. And he said, quote, I've seen how inadequate words can be in bringing about lasting change. I've seen how inadequate my own words have been. And so I'm reminded of a passage in John's Gospel, let us love not with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Before I get into it and ask everyone to give us a gut check or their initial reactions from this Dallas memorial service and President Obama's remarks, I just wanted to take a moment to talk about a way that you can get uh, your hands on a copy of our magazine, Christianity Today magazine. A subscription to that is what makes this podcast possible. Christianity Today magazine offers redemptive and honest coverage of people, of events and ideas that shape church and culture. And so as a subscriber each year, you're going to get our 10 award-winning print issues. You will be able to read our magazine on your tablet or via PDF form. You get complete web access to ChristianityToday.com and that includes visiting our archives back to 1956. And so for those of you that listen to Quick to Listen, we invite you to subscribe for $10 a year. And you can do that at orderct.com slash quick to listen. So orderct.com slash quick to listen. So without further ado, let's head back to the gut check. Um, Joshua, I'm just wondering if you can kick us off for what was your initial gut check, maybe in 140 characters or less of the Dallas Memorial Service and President Obama's remarks. Yeah, um, first, I I thought it was a call for tender hearts. It was a call from the president for us to reject the cynicism and numbness that comes after seeing all of this violence and division. He asked us for our hearts to break and then once broken to try to do something, whatever we can in our power to do. So when he quoted First John, he was saying, guys and ladies, American people, I can't do this on my own. I need your help. And I don't even know if my words are enough. And I, so I need your help in this process of American renewal. And that he was calling for an empathy revolution. He was calling for people to join him in this process of American renewal. Yeah, it's a really interesting passage that President Obama quoted. And it sounds like it's from First John 
not John's gospel. <laughs> we know that our listeners are Bible nerds, so they will they will very quickly pick up on the difference between the two. But it's an interesting passage. I would I wonder if words and actions are really that different because when we speak, we are enacting something. I would say uttering words have incredible power in the world to shape our life together. And so actually speaking on the tragedies of last week, speaking things of lament, of solidarity, of needing change, these are actions and they're powerful actions. And oftentimes words are the most powerful thing we have. My own gut reaction to the memorial service in general was that it felt overall healing. I think there was something that was really strong to me about the symbolism of having the former President Bush there, George W. Bush, and having President Obama both deliver remarks and then grab each other's hand at the end mm. of the service. And reminds me, too, when you're talking about words, another thing that's powerful to me is also symbols. And, and I found that particularly moving at the same time, knowing that they represent different parts of our country and different backgrounds and Mm -hmm. in many ways, two different really divisive errors for their own particular reasons. We're in such a polarized moment in our in our country. And that's part of what makes mourning tragedies like last week's even more difficult. And so that I, I resonate with that, the power of that symbolism as well. Yeah, the, the only other thing that, that I would add, if I may, is that I thought the president sort of subtly redrew the lines of, of civic discourse in a way. I mean, he it was really interesting to me that um, he placed the police officers in Dallas and the protesters sort of on the same side. You know, he was saying the protesters are helping to renew our democracy by critiquing things that they see that are wrong. The police officers are helping to protect our democracy. So it's folks who are working to perfect our union on one side and folks who are working to tear our union down on another side, whether that's through violence, through division, hate, manifested in in various forms. And so it's just a sort of an interesting way to think about things that the black white divide is important and must be analyzed. But it's also, you know, are you contributing to the solution? Or are you contributing to the problem? It seemed to be sort of an overarching theme of, of the president's remarks. Joshua, I wanted to ask you about something that you personally did last week, which is you went on Twitter and you created a form letter that people whom in this case you framed to as non-black friends could send to their police department. Can you tell me a little bit about your thought process in creating that and putting that online? Yeah, it, was a, it started with as just a sort of a very personal thing. So I, I live outside of D.C., and I realize I have never had a conversation with my police chief in my town. Uh, and I have a 10-month-old son, an uh, African-American son, a little boy who will eventually be a young man. And I, I wanted to have that dialogue to, to both affirm the hard and difficult work that uh, police officers engage in every day, but also to ask questions about how prepared they are to uh, de-escalate conflict, to reveal and address um, any bias. And, and by the way, when I say bias, every single one of us has a, some level of, of bias to scientific fact. And so that's not a pejorative thing I'm saying about the officers. I'm saying that we all have the uh, some level of implicit sort of subconscious bias. And are they trained to deal with that? So I realized I'd never asked these questions before. And if I'm going to advocate for change at the federal level, systemic level, if I'm going to tweet, if I'm going to 
address these issues with my words, then I should also take a practical step in, in my own community. And it was sort of a shame that I hadn't done that up until that point. And so I, I wrote my, my police chief and I shared the text of it in case other people wanted to do the same. And it, it was amazing how it just sort of took off. It was sort of retweeted some, around 5,000 times, like 700,000 people have, have seen it. And, and what's fascinating is that People are writing their own chiefs and the chiefs are responding. I just got a, a note a, uh, about an hour ago, I think, you know, with another response from the police chief. Sam Beach said his local police department responded with answers to the questions about anti-bias training, um, de-escalating conflict. Uh, police uh, department in Orlando, the, actually the chief responded on Twitter answering some of these questions. And then the letter concluded by saying that as you do these things, we're here to support you. You know, you're not just out here on your your own. Um, when you take these steps, we want you to know that we're here to support you. And and so it's just been, uh, you know, amazing seeing how, you know, just a, a simple practical step is you know, kind of helps people see a little bit through the fog and, and, and gives them something that they can do that can actually help the community. Yeah, what I really like about the form letter that you made available, Joshua, is how it focuses action on local communities. So I think we often as Christians, we think that our calling is to change, quote unquote, the culture, like this, this big, massive, uh, ephemeral thing out there, when in fact, the culture is whatever local community and context we find ourselves in. So when we talk about changing policing and and holding our police departments to accountability, we have to start with our very own police department. And it's amazing how so few of us actually think to start there. Like we're more, we're more prone to like tweet something or post something on social media about the police, when in fact, as citizens in a democracy, we actually have some agency in holding our own local de- police departments accountable. So I really appreciate how localized your your solution, the solution that you offered is. Yeah. And, and, and you know, just and thank you for that. And, and just very practically, oftentimes challenges come n- not with departments that engage with African-Americans on a regular basis, because those departments are almost by definition, um, they have to be more trained on some of these issues. But really in communities that are somewhat more homogenous, that you know, someone may be driving through who the police have not dealt with on a regular basis. And so, you know, suburban communities, communities that may be predominantly Caucasian, these are some of the places where we need to be having this conversation with the, with the police the most. I, I think as believers, we um, often uh, get stuck on, you know, the, the level of addressing the powers and principalities of this world but without getting down to the to the granular work of addressing the challenges that that are right in front of us, and we have to remember that you know our our savior was a very personal savior who engaged with people and issues face to face every single day, um, and that 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 he walked this this earth, and and if we're going to model ourselves a- after him, we've got to be willing to get our hands dirty as well, not at the macro level, but really at the micro level in our communities. This episode is brought to you by Preaching Today. Are you tired of chasing down quality sermon illustrations? Need fresh ideas for helping your message connect? Each week, Preaching Today adds fresh content to our database of over 14,000 editor-screened illustrations. Quickly find the right story that will bring your message to life and help your people move closer to God. Get started today at preachingtoday.com. 
www.thepowerhouse.com. So Joshua, in this case, you were creating a situation where people in majority culture could use their voice with obviously a big help from you to speak directly into some issues that may be affecting their local community. I'm wondering in circumstances like these, what voices really should be elevated during this time and how should they be elevated? Well, I, I wouldn't want to be overly prescriptive. I, I would say that, you know, people as they consult their own hearts and, and the spirit of God and, and they should uh, respond accordingly. I think there's there's a spectrum, you know, the, the voices of experts, people who have engaged on these difficult, complex matters for a long time should certainly be out there. You know, the Ta-Nehisi Coates of, of the world, Michael Eric Dyson's, the, and, and also the people who have engaged these issues from the perspective of, of the church. But, but I also think there's space for everyday folks, including people of color, to just mourn, to express anger, to express um frustration. And there's a lot of space for solidarity from people who um, are not in these communities, but want to express support. And, and, then I, and I may be in the, sometimes I don't know that you know, people always agree with me on this one, but I, I personally think that there's a space for silence as well. I'm, I'm not one of those who think that, you know, if you're not posting something on Facebook, that necessarily means that you're like opposed to me or you're apathetic or you don't care. I, I think sometimes people are just sort of overwhelmed and processing and don't know what to say. And so part of what I was trying to do with, you know, with this tweet and with this step was, okay, here, here's something you can do um, that is contributing to a solution that doesn't force you to be sort of an eloquent summarizer of our, our race problem in your Twitter. <laughs> like not everyone's able to do that, right? And But we all can do something. And so that's what sort of this was all about. So one of the, one of the common um, lines of thought that that I've heard after tragedies like this that uniquely affect communities of color is basically for, for those, you know, majority culture people who feel like they want to do something or want to be part of the solution, they will often turn to persons of color and say, what should I do? What can I do? And the response to that is like, stop asking me what you can do, like either figure it out yourself or maybe like maybe you're not actually part of the solution or maybe you don't get to like drive the change in this in this situation. It sounds like you're not uh, you're of a different uh, belief in this regard and a different philosophy. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a difference between driving the change and, and just sort of being, you know, a helpful contributor to, to the change. Um, in, in my premarital counseling with, with my um, with my wife, one of the key things that our counselor would say to us, and, and I think this is a pretty consistent thing across marriage counselors, is that you're not allowed to force the other person to automatically know what to do and what to think. Like you actually have to articulate, even if you don't want to, even if you want them, uh, if you if you wish that they just knew um, the next step, the right step, that's, that's an unfair expectation. And, and I think that's the case with some of these issues as well. Yes, in an ideal world, I would need no translator for my anger, for my pain. People would automatically know how to address these issues. But the reality is we're human, we're frail, and people don't always know. And so I think if you have it in you to, to give people some guidance and some help and some perspective, and if they choose to then take that up and take a small step, I think that's perfectly fine. I, I think it's it's okay for people of color who are not of color to, to want to be a part of the solution, to ask how to engage, but then, you know, just be sincere in it, you know, actually, <laughs> then actually 
um, follow up and, 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 and do it or, um, or, or pose something else. I guess the, the last thing, part, part of what is underlying the, the response from people of color sometimes is don't always just talk to me about it. Talk with your own circles, right? And so I am one who thinks that we need to have more conversations about race at predominantly white churches than predominantly black churches. Like I, I would love for every white evangelical congregation in this country to host a Black History Month event next year, just to like, you know, be, become wise on these issues, to, to engage this history in, in our country. So part of what you're hearing from people of color is we don't always want to brief people on things that they really should know if they care about this country, because this is an important part of our national story. It's a little bit of do your research and then let's talk. There are, there are circles that you're a part of. There are family members that you have access to. There are places that you can go and have deeper, more intense conversations and maybe some of what you need to do that work needs to start there yeah i think that's exactly right yeah yeah which i think goes into a little bit of what i was just wanted to bring up about this like term conversation right and how that can kind of be applied to both social media or to workplace conversations or to small group conversations or the one-on-one that you have with your pastor um and that the rules of engagement for those conversations, whether it's listening or speaking, may apply completely differently depending on like the level of relationship and how public those conversations are with people and what what your silence can communicate, whether it's in person or through a place that's, you know, completely mediated through like digital means. So you talked about the word solidarity, and I didn't know if you could give any, any examples of where you've seen solidarity be at its most powerful or most effective. Yeah, you know, there's a there's a whole range, um, you know, from my friend Doug Birdsall, you know, the former head of the Lausanne movement and um, for a time the American Bible Society, who started a whole initiative and movement to to help engage uh, white evangelical pastors on issues of race, you know, something significant and long lasting like that. To my friend uh, Jessica, you know, my wife and I's good friend who texted me and says, you know, in the middle of last week. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I don't even know what to post, but I just want you to know I'm thinking about you and praying for the right way to respond to these issues. And so, and, and everything in between. So I, I think it really is about this notion and it's really, and the president said it yesterday of, you know, of a, of a tender heart, allowing our hearts to be open and when necessary to, to break for someone else. And then asking for the Holy Spirit to, to, to push us in whatever direction um, that we are supposed to go as individuals. It won't be the same for everyone. But when we have a new heart, a tender heart, um, and when we're, we're sensitive to the pain of others, then almost always we'll find some way to act. I was struck last week by, well, one, just by how many white evangelical leaders were quickly and directly speaking out against these shootings of African-American men and and connecting it to a larger problem of systemic injustice in our country. And then I was also struck by my my own reticence to say something, not because my heart wasn't breaking, but because I thought, what could I possibly contribute to the conversation that is necessary in this moment? Yeah, that yeah. That prayer... And, you know, reaching out to friends of color wouldn't be more, wouldn't that be more powerful than just going on Twitter and and voicing my my opinions? My I think my concern is that when majority culture leaders speak out on these issues, it becomes about them. 
and their thoughts and opinions rather than about communities who are more directly affected by tragedies like last week's. I think that's an appropriate concern. Um, and, and that's why I think just the response has got to be so personalized. You know, in this case, you may have been led to a more private and reflective response. But in other cases, you are going to feel and have felt like you have something to add to the conversation. And that's why, you know, I think that they are all appropriate if they come from a good place, a, a, a courageous place, an authentic place. Um, and so that's, you know, I, I think there can be a range of responses. There's going to be a variety of responses from the people who are most directly affected by the issue. And that when as, as we're looking through how they're processing and making sense of things and the ways that they're reacting to how majority culture is or is not involved on this there's not a standard person of color response to how this right this gets out there and you can't just ask that one person of color who you're cool with on twitter to approve how Mm. you're going to be feeling or in that instance and especially then generalize that other that everyone else that Mm -hmm. might be the same religion or race as them will then somehow also find your words powerful or soothing or comforting um, and it's just important to not see that group as monolithic in that mm-hmm. way. The other piece that's important in times like this, candidly, is like a little bit of resilience, because sometimes, particularly when people are angry and particularly after tragedies like this, you may speak out and, you know, people will not people may find some small issue with what you said and, and respond out of that that anger or out of that frustration my message to the majority community would be, you know, keep coming from a place of love. Don't disengage, have a level of sort of emotional resilience um, and and don't uh, allow the very real and authentic frustration and anger that's felt within communities of color. Don't allow that to push you away uh, from, you know, from showing your heart. I, I just, I think sometimes people get a little intimidated because these are tough, thorny, really difficult issues. Um, uh, and even when they have something to contribute, they don't feel like they can without sort of getting beat up. Right. And, and, and the reality is from time to time, you may be some pushback, but I, I would rather have people authentically asking real questions and engaging than, you know, operating in silence or dis or completely disengaged and disinterested. So, yeah, I mean, going back to the, you know, the premarital counseling and the, the marriage metaphor, if, one spouse is really upset and angry and grieving after a tragedy or after something has happened to them. You hope that the other spouse has the capacity to say, I can receive your anger. I don't fully understand it. Mm -hmm. I don't have the same emotional response, but I see that you are angry and that's okay. A loving spouse won't try to determine what emotions are okay or not okay after something painful has happened. In good faith, I think a lot of majority culture Christians want to have that posture, but it it, it also feels personal or it feels like, I don't know what to do for you. And maybe there's a level of impatience, you know, but I think that that marriage metaphor is actually really powerful, Joshua. Yeah, you know, we're still trying to live and walk it out, but you know, learned a lot along uh, <laughs> along the way, mostly from Michelle Dubois rather than things that I should we have Michelle I, on to talk about marriage and 
let me let me stop and, and hand her the <laughs> <laughs> right. but yeah that said let me just note that there are some like basic triggers and I, I actually hate that word but there are some basic um things that like if possible you know don't fall into some of these traps like you know one responding to incidents of violence against African-Americans with what about black on black crime? Like just Google that first. And there are some really great answers for why those are, you know, kind of distinct issues um, along the same lines. Like even if you are more on the all lives matter side than the black lives matter side, at least know what people are saying, what they mean when they're saying Black Lives Matter, the short version is they mean Black Lives Matter to a T-O-O, because if for far too long, it has felt like Black Lives did not matter as, as, as much. So, I mean, they're, they're just sort of some basic things that when you tweet those, when you Facebook those without doing a little research around, you know, where people are coming from, then that will, in fact, trigger, I think, unhelpful responses because it's probably an unhelpful assertion in the first place. Well, thank you so much for providing those resources for our listeners, Joshua. I just want to let everyone know that they can continue this conversation and I'm sure start other conversations of their own on Facebook and Twitter. But specifically for us, you can find us at CT Podcasts, which is on Twitter at CT Podcasts or Facebook.com slash CT Podcasts. So we are going to shift gears right now for the segment of the show that we call Precious Moments. A time of the show that we intentionally devote to recognizing things that bring us joy. So I've asked Joshua and Caitlin to tell us a movie or TV show that is bringing them joy this week and also to share where we can all find them online. So Joshua, go ahead. Sure. So I'm online at, at Joshua Dubois on, on Twitter. I am not cool enough for Snapchat yet. And my Instagram <laughs> is all pictures of me uh, smoking meat and barbecue. I, I, be clear, meat, uh, <laughs> pork shoulders and so forth. Not smoking meat. <laughs> <anything else. laughs> smoking meat. Yeah, no, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, the, the pork shoulders, ribs, etc. So if you're interested in that, feel free to follow me on Instagram and also an endless stream of pictures of my 10 month old, but mostly Twitter at, at Joshua Dubois. Um, and what is giving me joy um, media wise these days I mean it's really boring I'm sorry I, I I watch at least an episode of modern family on DVR uh, you know before bed <laughs> every, almost every night and you um, have our comfort I, media oh man I can't I you know I can't it used to at first it was Seinfeld then it was the office for years and now it's modern family and so that, that helps me um, calm down at the end of a long day so and I will just commend Joshua's Instagram feed even though it features a lot of meat and I'm not like super passionate about meat his son August is so cute and I oh, can't you. get enough of cute baby photos so. <laughs> <laughs> he's teething right now so if there are any would-be babysitters out in um, <laughs> CT podcast land l let me know Caitlin do you watch TV uh I'm kind of in a slump right now. I, I will go through seasons where I get really excited about a show and watch it through like a couple times. I'm someone who watches TV shows like multiple times through. Uh, but right now I'm actually in a slump. So I'm just going to mention the new Ghostbusters movie featuring the all-female cast. This is from Paul Feig, who did uh, Freaks and Geeks and several other um, strong woman movies in the past 10 years. And there's been a lot of chatter about having an all-female cast in the original Ghostbusters story, but I'm excited about seeing it. I'm a fan of all of the 
comedians who are featured in the movie. And you can learn more about me at Caitlin Beatty on Twitter. And I actually just set up a website to uh, let people know about my new book, which I will be talking to our colleague Richard Clark about soon on an episode of The Calling, which is our brother podcast. But you can find me there at CaitlinBeatty.com. So one film that is bringing me joy is a oral history production that was put together by some youth in my neighborhood in Chicago. Mm. And I had the chance to screen it last night at the Chicago History Museum. It's a neighborhood that Martin Luther King Jr. actually lived close by. He lived right below that. And he preached and organized in a church that's a couple minutes away walking from my house. But essentially after his death, a lot of the activism and the work that he had done um, and the legacy of that had not been really preserved well. And so there were quite a few youth that belonged to this film team that's part of a nonprofit in my neighborhood. And they went out and they did about 25 different community interviews. And then they put it together in a film that I got to watch last night. Brought that's me. cool. And you can find me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. Anyway, guys, that is it for this week. We are super thankful for you guys listening and checking out another episode of Quick to Listen. And this show is produced by Richard Clark and Cray Allred. Thank you always to Kate Shellnut. Please subscribe to our show via iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Overcast, whatever you'd like. And if you like the show, beyond tweeting that you like the show and letting us know, you can do that through rating and reviewing us on iTunes. And that helps a lot. We will see you all next week. See ya. This episode was brought to you in part by the Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.